Well, good morning, church. We are continuing in Romans today, so please meet me in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders. Uh, It's a joy to get to be one of the elders at Church in the Square and get to open up God's Word, continuing to consider Paul's letter that he wrote about 57 AD to uh, Jewish, and, Jewish and Gentile Christians in the city of Rome about that time. And if you remember last week, we considered what we love. You remember that God desires and that God is determined to strip away from you, to strip away from me anything and everything we could possibly love and trust more than him. For most of us, if we're really honest, we've never been in a season like we're in right now that we feel the things that we love and the things that we trust being stripped away from us. Stripped away from us perhaps in, in ways that we never before thought would be possible in a free, free republic like our own. To be sure, we've always faced this divine theft, that God has always been willing to take from his people things that we would love and trust more than him. But it, but in 2020, we have seen this escalate in, in incredible ways and in some unexpected ways. Sometimes it's about an idol and other times it's, it's about basic safety and what we need to be human and to be alive and have dignity and worth bestowed and, and seen in us. If you, if you think about it, all that has been taken from us, if you will, in 2020, just as, as, as sort of a cursory overview, We need to look no further than our own country and see that over 200,000 lives have been taken from us. That many times we get lost in the details of perhaps our everyday life, but this is one that is over and against all of those things. Vacations have been taken from us. Family reunions, schools have been taken from us. New parents had a particular birth story that they desired, and those have been completely taken from us. Perhaps your personal safety and your well-being that that perhaps previously you thought that you could walk outside at a particular time in a particular way, but this season has revealed to you that even that has been taken from you. A kind of liberty of simple and uh, needed personal safety. We've seen this especially true in, in a fresh way in our friends and neighbors of color, particularly those who are oppressed, have seen and felt this in a fresh way during this season. Some of these basic things and yet some of these idolatrous things have been taken away from us. The very simple pleasure of simply leaving the home has been taken from us in a myriad of different ways. Much has been taken from us and likely much more will feel like it will be required of us and stripped away from us, all in varying degrees and ways we have uh, had to face the Lord then this year. Think, Think about this. We've had to face the Lord this year without the distractions, crutches, presumptions, and the things of the good life that we thought we were owed and that we deserved. We've had to face life without a lot of our idols, but also with a lot of certain unalienable rights or things that we thought would never come into question. We are a people from whom much has been stripped away. And so loving and trusting God seems to be all that we have left. And and, and for some of us, I wonder if we're getting that picture. Still trying to love our idol, still trying to nurture a relationship with something that is actually corrosive and destructive, something that we we are elevating to the status of God that is merely a gift from him. And so last week we had to ask the question, what do you love? 
What do you love? What do I love? And today I want to continue to talk about your heart and about mine. To be sure, every time we come to God's word, we're talking about the heart. This is what God's word is so faithful to do. This is a book that when you read it, it reads you back. When we believe we are coming to God's word to to get data from it, if you will, to get information from it, what always happens if we would come to the Lord, to his word with a surrendered heart, is he'll reveal things about us. He'll, He'll show us things by revealing to us first his character. He'll reveal our character. It exposes our interior life, no matter how hard we try to ward off its truth bombs, our veneers of righteousness stand no chance against God's word. Remember, that's what Paul's Jewish readers have been doing. They have loved and trusted the law, their supposed exclusive relationship with Yahweh, their their covenant God. The fact that they have the law and that they know right from wrong. And just last week, we considered what, what may have been their last line of personal defense, their circumcision. See, Jewish Christians were relying upon and resting in the religious sentimentality of their circumcision as a means by which they would avoid God's judgment and wrath. But Paul told them, if you remember in Romans 2.25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Their last, and what maybe they believe was their strongest and most powerful line of defense, protecting their personal righteousness, is rendered impotent because they have broken the law. And we all have. This is what we should have recognized from the beginnings of Romans chapter 2, is that we're not reading about a people who broke the law. We are reading that all people have broken the law. So we may not be resting and relying upon circumcision in particular, but we do find false hopes in the secular and sacred idols of our day, things we love and trust more than God. Isn't that true? And when those idols and those things that we love and trust are are exposed or even suggested, I think a lot of times our response can be defensiveness. That we can be ready to explain how we are the caveat. We, We are the exception to the rule. But to truly be the Lord's, to be surrendered to him, is to always be open to the accusations from God's word and from God's people. I wonder if I am. I've had to ask myself that question. I wonder if you are. Are you always open to an accusation from God's word? See, I think a lot of times we're willing to say something is wrong with us, that we are willing to acknowledge something that we don't like about ourselves or something that we know that we're not perfect at. But it's, it's like what theologian Jeremy Taylor said, that if you say you're being foolish, don't get angry if someone agrees. If you say you're being foolish, don't get angry if someone agrees. This summarizes the art and discipline of refusing to be defensive and rather trusting the Lord. Something we've been, uh, we've likely been tempted toward, I think, throughout the entire chapter here in Romans chapter 2. It, in fact, reminds me of a man named Russell Moore in 2016. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And in 2016, he was criticized by a presidential candidate who called him a nasty guy with no heart. 
can you imagine how to respond to that in sort of a public forum? A, a national cable news outlet obviously picks up on this story, naturally reaches out to uh, Russell Moore and asks him on their show to ask him, essentially, what is your response? This is what this person said. How do you respond? I wonder how you would respond. I've thought many times how I'd respond. It would not be very nice. It would not be very loving. It would not be filled with all of the aspects of the fruit of the spirit that it ought to be. Here's what Dr. Moore said. He said, I am a nasty guy with no heart which is why I need forgiveness of sins and redemption through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He continued, we sing worse things about ourselves in our hymns on Sunday mornings. We are a wretch and in need of God's grace. Through chapter two, Paul has said some pretty pointed things about our spiritual state. Even as Christians, we are prone to rely upon the gifts of God and not God himself. We have turned God's gifts into God's good things into the most important thing or the central thing. Therefore, we, God's people, have become a type of people who are not a people, not his people. And so I wonder if through this, like me, you've been tempted towards defensiveness. Are you the exception to the rule? Have you been refusing to admit your own sinful proclivities of pride, of hypocrisy, of idolatry? Because here's what we need to all admit as we finish this particular chapter today. You are broken and so am I. Your heart is broken and so is mine. You are a nasty person and I am a nasty person as well. At the level of our hearts, we need to be changed. But the good news and what I want to talk to us today about from this particular passage in Romans is that when we lay down our defenses, we actually get a new heart. When we lay down these defenses, these religious trappings, these, these sort of responses to say that we are the exception to the rule, we get a new heart. You see, when your heart is the Lord's, you can lay down your defenses joyfully and without fear. Can you even imagine waking up and not being afraid? to protect your reputation, to protect your religious disposition, to protect yourself, because you neither need nor are you interested in a righteousness of your own because you have the righteousness of Christ. When we are the Lord's, we trust in the righteousness of Christ and don't have to defend our own version of it. Am I preaching to you yet? So if, if last week we looked at what God strips away at the level of the heart, today we'll consider how God fills us with a new heart and a kind of heart that is brand new through the work of Christ. So let's hear this word from Romans chapter two, verse 25 through 29. These are the very words of God. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Verse 27 then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we're coming to your word uh, because where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And so I pray for my sisters, I pray for my brothers, that whatever this week was like and whatever we are anticipating in the week to come, would we, in the middle of that, in the middle of what has been, in the middle of what, yet, what has not yet come to pass, would we simply be still and know that you're God? Would you help us? We are so prone to find our ideas and our hopes and our logic outside of your word. And so help us in this moment to, as your children to hear from our Father and to, and to better understand reality, your love, the nature of the world that you have created, that our ideas, our affections, our actions would all be shaped by your word today. Forgive us for the ways this past week we, we were defensive, that we did not lay down our rights, that we did not lay down our defenses, but, but instead, Father, tried to continue to keep our idols alive through our behavior and our thinking and our loves. And so, God, I pray that as you have stripped those things away and continue to strip those things away, fill us with righteousness. Fill us with your truth. And to that end, I want to be available to you, Father. So help me. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so one of the most pointed things that Paul has said, maybe anywhere, but specifically in chapter 2, or at least what he has directly intimated here to his readers, is that Jews are essentially Gentiles if they don't obey the law. No matter what, he called disobedient Jews Gentiles. And now in verses 26 and 27, he'll take another step by using Gentiles to instruct Jews on the nature and way of God. Something they would not be really down with or excited about. But here's what he says in verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. So whereas in verse 25, Paul says that Jews who break the law are essentially Gentiles, here he says that Gentiles who obey the law are essentially Jews and even condemn the Jews. His words are essentially a retelling of Romans chapter 2, just with chapter 2 verse 6, just with more teeth. And it's difficult to summarize in our particular cultural context and in, in our consciousness here in the 21st century church, how offended the Jews would have been by Paul's words if they were ready to defend themselves as they had been throughout chapter two, or at least as Paul had sort of anticipated that they would be. See, the Jews viewed the Gentiles with incredible disdain. The Jews were a holy nation and Gentiles were other nations. And the law was precious to them, to, to the Jew. And circumcision was precious to them. And so Paul is speaking about a gift and an identity which Jews valued more than anything as being better suited for their deplorable neighbors, these other nations. Think about that. What's more, remember Paul is writing to, to a church where there are both Jews and Gentiles. They're a part of the same congregation. So it's not like Paul is giving them this word just as a Jewish people and just go, yo, you should understand this. Their Gentile brothers and sisters are overhearing this condemning word coming from Paul. And so you can imagine that that room was pretty awkward. That was pretty uncomfortable for the Jews and Gentiles to sit in together. And, and the logic that Paul is using centers on obedience to the law through a changed heart. 
So he's taking the conversation away from seeing a redeemable and, and salvific power in their uh, nature and their identity as Jew or as Gentile, and he centers it all on the heart. Let me explain why this was and should be incredibly unnerving to us and do my very best to bring it home to our current context and, and how Paul was unpacking some things in here that, that need to be uh, unpacked in our own hearts. See, many of us are very uncomfortable about conversations and messages about race and ethnicity. Even that kind of line, or maybe even the reading that we read today by way of lament and confession was unsettling to you. See, in fact, in the middle of our current racial reckoning in America, some of us are more angry, more frustrated about having to keep talking about this or seeing posts about injustice or race than we are about people continually being killed. But it seems that the heart of the gospel demands these conversations in the local church and a response from the local church. See, ethnic division was ravaging the minds and relationships of the first century Christians here in Rome. To be sure, their divisions and scripture's teachings center primarily around Jews and Gentiles, but the principal conclusions take us to the very same place. All of our issues with race are gospel issues. We do not simply have different backgrounds and perspectives. We are worshiping false gods and performing demonic sin when we do not engage what the scriptures teach and command and equip us to engage. So we must, and by we, I mean myself and our church, but holistically as the 21st century church must do a better job leaning into this and ultimately trusting the Lord. So yeah, it would have been really awkward reading that. It would have been really uncomfortable reading that out loud in a multi-ethnic church, and we should feel the heaviness of that. And if we're really hearing this message today, we should feel that discomfort about our defensive inclination as oppressors and our joyful liberation as the oppressed. You see, the gospel, oh, this is so good, the gospel always puts the sinner on notice and frees the oppressed from their shackles. The gospel always puts the oppressor on notice that judgment is coming and always frees the oppressed from their shackles, that, that our, our God liberates the captive. This is what was going on between the lines of Paul's words. He's destroying privilege. He's dismantling entitlement. He's calling out xenophobia. He's breaking down perspectives of specialness based on ethnic heritage. And I wonder, church, if God's spirit may be doing and speaking the very same thing to you and me today, my brothers and sisters. There is no special status before God in this life, nor in the age to come based upon our ethnicity or our religious upbringing. God shows no partiality. And can I love you and bring us a picture of the way that this happens and what this looks like in real space and real time? Professor Sung Chun Ra explains in his book, Prophetic Lament, using the, the struggle of African Americans in the United States as a way to explain a larger picture. He says, that often American Christians may even deny the narrative of suffering, claiming that things weren't so bad for the slaves, or that at least the African Americans, at least the African Americans had a chance to convert to Christianity. The story of suffering is often swept under the rug in order to not to create discomfort or bad feelings. Lament is denied because the dead body in front of us is being 
denied. As the American, not just the white, but as the American church, we have a tendency to avoid discomfort and dismiss lament at all costs through over-spiritualization. What's that mean? You see, if Paul is talking about, if what Paul is talking about is only spiritual matters of salvation in this life and in the age to come, I don't have to look at my black sister. I don't have to look at my Mexican brother, my Japanese sister, or my Guatemalan brother and embrace and share their suffering and hear their story. I just have to make sure they get saved. If we over-spiritualize all of this, we miss the person in front of us and all we care about is giving them some sort of ethereal golden ticket to heaven before they die. In, in other words, here's what I think it really comes down to for, for the Jews and Gentiles in the first century and for you and I here today, is that we believe we can have spiritual family in heaven with whom we don't have to love and live with on this earth. Let that settle, please. We believe we can have a spiritual family in heaven with members, brothers and sisters, with whom we don't have to live and love in this life. And that's a lie. So in Romans chapter 2, verse 26 through 27, Paul continues to steal all of our wiggle room. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to turn. But to this point, he's, he's focused on this sort of external display, if you will, that, that are not virtuous explanations or just demonstrations of faith that what is not true faith. And now he moves into the direct consideration of the heart to the interior life of every follower of Jesus, from what God is stripping away to how God is filling us up. So how is God making us new? How is God filling up his people from what he has stripped away? Look at verse 28 and 29, Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward, and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So he's demonstrated that skin color and ethnicity are not what boasts any kind of strength and salvation or sanctification or specialness before God. Or how he, how he puts it in verse 28, that true Jewishness, what he's using as a euphemism really for godliness or to being a child of God and true circumcision is a matter of the inward life. It's a matter of the heart, he says. Now, this may seem all well and good. And, and if we're really honest, it can seem a little bit uh, sentimental, like some sort of greeting card sentiment, that, that it's not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside that counts right? And I mean, I'd never try to punk Paul, but that's kind of what it sounds like. But what is he getting at? What, what ultimately is he communicating? Look again at verse 29. He says that circumcision is a matter of the heart, or your translation may say circumcision is circumcision of the heart. This idea that circumcision is a matter of the heart or is a circumcision of the heart runs throughout the Bible. So let's be really clear, and I think this is always important for us to do, that God has always been concerned with the heart. This is not a new divine fascination with the new covenant or the new testament. He has always been concerned about the true self and the innermost being of his prized creation, you and me, humanity, those who bear his image. See, he created you 
and your innermost being in your mother's womb. He knit you together, Psalm 139 tells us. See, I know you've got a demanding and impressive job now, but he knit you together in your mother's womb. I know you're super independent. You chew your own food. You've got your own job. You pay your own bills. You do your own taxes. You live on your own, but God knit you together. I know that you're a really incredible person, but God knit you together. And what the Lord has knit together, he nurtures and he nourishes with his truth at the level of the heart. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 51, 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God knit us together in our inward being, and he delights, he delights, church, to shape and empower our inner being, our true self with his truth and his wisdom, that is his word. See, this idea of God's inward and interior care in general and circumcision of the heart in particular finds its origin in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me read this particular passage in its fullness so we get a good picture of the context and where it comes from. If you'd like, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Then verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. And then verse 22, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The big point in this passage, of course, is that God is God and there's no one like him. There was no other God or power or being who could or would do what God has promised and done for his people. The heaven of heavens belong to him. He is God of gods. He is Lord of lords. And though this is the major note, there are minor notes, if you will, that resonate with us, especially in our consideration of Romans chapter 2. I wonder if you heard them. The call to obedience is central and binding for God's people before God even establishes his people with their identity as Israel. So obedience is their aim and God's righteousness. But 
then the way in which this obedience ought to be established and secured is actually through circumcision of the heart. Did you notice that? And so in the context, there is a change from pride and arrogance and stubbornness, self-determinism to humility, submission, and obedience. And it's important to keep in mind as we keep like a large picture and understanding of God's covenant making with his people throughout the scriptures, that there are two signs of the old covenant circumcision and Passover. Circumcision was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 as a physical marker of God's people and a sign of God's faithfulness to his covenant and his faithfulness to his people. And then in Exodus 12, during Egyptian captivity, God instructed his people to paint blood over the doorposts of their homes so that he would pass over their families, only taking life from the unmarked homes. This was a sign to Pharaoh to let God's people go free. And And Jewish people even to this day celebrate Passover. So we have circumcision, the removal of foreskin on the eighth day. And we have Passover, a marking of blood over the home. And so in in many respects, the union of these two signs is, is blood. It's the shedding of life. It's the shedding, the literal shedding of blood. So those are the two signs of the old covenant. And, And the new has two signs as well, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism was instituted in the Gospels by John the Baptizer, Matthew chapter 3. And in the early church and the apostles, especially Acts chapter 2, verse 38, as a carryover of circumcision, a mark upon God's people. The Lord's Supper instituted by Jesus himself as the fulfillment of the Passover meal. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, drink of it. And a little bit later, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood which outside of this covenantal language makes no sense to say something like that, but Jesus is making a connection. See, baptism is a sign of our union with God and with his people. The Lord's Supper is a sign of the body and blood of Jesus, a meal, in fact, that we will share with Christ in the age to come. In fact, I think it's comforting to know through our digital gatherings as we abstain from taking the Lord's Supper together, in many ways we are identifying with Christ's patience who waits to take this meal with us physically again in the age to come in real space and real time. So what's fascinating is that while the signs of the old covenant are united through the shedding of blood, the two signs of the new are united through their lack of blood, if you will. Why? Because Jesus' blood has already been shed once and for all. No other blood needs to be shed. Therefore, what matters? What has always mattered are not the signs, but the reality to which these signs point. Outward displays of inward reality. Outward displays of inward reality. That that reality being that a covenant has been made, that, that a life has been truly transformed from darkness to life, from death to life, from self back to God, that God has done a work here, that he has initiated with us, that he loved us first, that he was faithful first and forever, it means then our spiritual life is informed first and foremost, not by the letter of the law, but by God's love for us and the love within our hearts, or rather, as Paul puts it here in Romans chapter two, by the spirit. It is the spirit that binds us together with God through the work of Christ and not by our works, not by the law. This is why we no longer find merit nor spiritual meaning in physical circumcision, or any other religious effort or sentiment, tradition, habit, or holiday. All of these are signs pointing to something that matters. The signs don't matter. 
These are all signs which point to something that is truly significant. That's what a sign does. It's an outward display of an inward reality. And so we should be so careful whenever we put too much effort, energy, and value into a sign, which is meant to point us to something that is actually truly valuable. But we first, or rather, but we find great value, in, not in these things, but, but in circumcision of the heart. We find deep value in this truth and the substance of our faith. But it's fair to ask at this particular point, when we're speaking about circumcision of the heart, what exactly are we talking about? When this kind of language is used, not only in Paul, but throughout the scriptures, when this is sort of intimated throughout the scriptures, what exactly are we talking about? And it's, it's cool to be honest, like that seems like a very strange concept to think about of the circumcision of the heart, but the meaning is not awkward at all. It's life-giving. So what's God doing in our inward life? What's God doing in the, the innermost being? How is he shaping us? What truth does he delight to bring home to our hearts? And I, and I think there are at least four things that we have to consider. And whatever we consider about the nature of the heart, biblically, we're considering about our whole self because the heart is used as sort of the centerpiece of the human person. So when we're speaking about the heart, we're also speaking about the whole self in many respects. And so four different things that I think we should keep in mind when we think about the circumcision of the heart. First, a circumcised heart is a new heart. And I can't state this enough, that in Christ, you're a different person. Some of you know this about each other in group, that it's helpful to be in community because you look back over the course of the past couple of years when you became a follower of Jesus and as he's growing you, you need help remembering you're a different person now. You don't love and do the same things that you used to love and that you used to do or think the way that you used to think, that the Lord has changed you. This is, this is part and connected to that new heart as a result of this idea of the circumcision of the heart. The Bible tells us that the old has gone and that the new has come. You are a new creation. God promised us not just an upgrade, right, if we come to him, but a whole new self. Hear this. In Christ, you are not the best version of yourself. In Christ, you're new. You're completely different. You have a new heart. That's Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And God promises, I will give you a new heart. And so the Christian has loves and joys and even sorrows and laments that they did not have before they met Jesus. There are things that pull at the Christian that do not pull at the non-believer because their heart is new in Christ. Things that did not grieve you before you met Jesus now lead you to tears. Things that did not, didn't make you glad now lead you to rejoicing and singing publicly, albeit perhaps on a Zoom call. See, you are new. Secondly, not only is a, circumcision, uh, a circumcised heart a new heart, but a circumcised heart is a clean heart. You are washed of guilt and shame. The burden and weight of your sin and that of the sins committed against you can be lifted in Christ. It doesn't mean that you won't ever feel their weight. It means that you will not have to carry that weight forever and you'll never carry it alone. We have been washed clean of a guilty conscience. Oh, this is so precious. This is such a gift. Hear, hear this, church, from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 22. He says this, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. My sisters and my brothers, what this means is that every reason 
you could possibly think of and every reason someone else could possibly communicate to you as to why you cannot draw near to God has already been dealt with in Christ, has already been washed and forgiven in Jesus Christ. He has already washed you clean. You are clean. You are new and you are clean. Thirdly, a circumcised heart is a freed heart. The uncircumcised heart is enslaved to sin. They cannot help themselves. They cannot save themselves. They cannot change their behavior and their habits on their own. They are trapped by destructive patterns and their own will and the powers of this age. But in Christ, we are freed. That's Paul's message in Romans chapter 6. Verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. See, our hearts are no longer bound in sin and death. We are bound to Christ. And his bondage gives us life and liberation. So you are not only new, you are clean and you are free. Fourthly, A circumcised heart is a filled heart or an indwelled heart. See, religion and the patterns of self-actualization are empty. It's, It's foolish and a futile endeavor to seek a righteousness on your own or to look to the things of this world to fill you up to overflowing. They never will. Only Christ fulfills and satisfies or fills us. And this is not just good vibes or something. We don't just have this nebulous good feeling all of the time. In fact, sometimes Christians feel incredibly contrite and low because they're dealing in reality, because they're dealing with the true brokenness of the world. So this, this filled heart does not mean I all always have this warm and Twitter-pated feeling about my life. It means that ultimately I've got a joy in my heart that cannot be stolen even by the situations of this world. We are filled, and that's because we are filled and indwelled by God's Spirit. That's what Paul told actually a collection of uncircumcised Christian Gentiles in Colossae in the first century when he said, For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the powerful workings of God who raised him up from the dead. You are new, you are clean, you are free, and you are filled, empowered by God's Spirit. So, to be circumcised, of the heart, or to have a circumcised heart is to be new, it's to be clean, it's to be free, it's to be filled. And please notice, this this circumcision is a work that must be performed for you or on your behalf. These are not works of righteousness, which we perform unto God. These are works of grace performed by God for us. He makes us new. He cleans us up. He frees us from Satan's sin and death. He fills us with his spirit. Should be noted too that this sign of circumcision in particular was the sign of a consequence. In the ancient world, it was common practice to demonstrate the penalty for breaking a covenant when ratifying that promise. And so this sign of circumcision was a visual demonstration of the penalty for breaking the covenant. It was the cutting off of flesh in the most vulnerable and intimate of ways. And so to break the covenant was to be cut off completely from God 
and from his people. This is why blood was so significant. But when it comes to the circumcision of the heart, there is no blood, at least not ours. That's because instead of demonstrating our consequence, should the covenant be broken in baptism and the Lord's Supper in particular and the circumcision of the heart in general, we are given a picture of the one who took the consequence for us. Jesus was cut off completely from God and his people for us. So we don't have to be cut off because of Jesus. Because Jesus was cut off or removed from relationship with God in the most intimate way when he was hanging on the cross. Therefore, you and I don't have to be. That means these signs of the new covenant are not demonstrations of the penalty for the covenant being broken, but rather marks that someone else has already paid the penalty for the broken covenant, the covenant that you and I broke. Someone else has paid the penalty of the covenant that that we have been guilty of breaking. And so now, what we get in return makes no sense. This is grace. I mean, grace ultimately does not make any earthly logic to us. So Jesus pays the penalty and we get a new heart that is clean and free and filled. All of these then, all these aspects of our new heart, of the circumcised heart, are evidence then, a sign to us that we have been sealed and we have been secured by the promise of our God and his covenant. Paul has taken his readers from dead orthodoxy and extreme faithfulness to a sort of foolish spirituality and welcomed them now into this living hope. He has exposed us, explaining that God is willing and ready to strip away from us anything and everything which we could possibly love and trust more than him, anything that could keep us from him. But also that God loves us so much that he is willing to come to us and make us new, to wash us up, to free us from what binds us and to fill us with his spirit. And therefore, he concludes this passage in perhaps one of the most astounding ways and one of the most astounding pictures. Look at the very end of verse 29 in Romans 2. His praise is not from man, but from God. So not only does Jesus pay our penalty, but we receive this new heart that is clean and and free and filled And then we also receive praise, if you will, from God, joy and blessing and love from him that really only Christ deserves. So the one whose heart is circumcised receives this praise from God and not from men, that it may may seem odd to to think about receiving praise for this new heart that was given to us. But remember, we are uh, committed to these external displays and signs of righteousness for the sake of pleasure and approval of others think that that God will be impressed with the things that we're doing. And and in some respects, we're trying to get his praise through all of the things that we're doing. And what Paul is telling us is that's not the way to get praise. That is the way to be completely separated from him. The way to receive praise or approval from God is to submit, bow the knee, and worship Jesus, our Lord and our God. God's approval then comes inwardly through his intimate and invisible work of circumcision. Here's how I think it comes to bear for us. I think we're scared to death for our true self to be known. I think we're scared to death to allow the Lord to expose all that is in our inner being. This is why we are so committed to to groups here, because this, this is a form, if you will, a shape of the gospel in our lives that begins to expose things when we're known by our brothers and sisters. See, this kind of fear that we have is really actually very foolish and silly because Jesus knew we'd be scared. 
He knew this about us. He called this shot. He knew that we were going to be fearful. Jesus knew this world would be incredibly troubling. And so Jesus said 2,000 years before COVID-19, 2,000 years before you were scared to walk outside at night, 2,000 years before you feared your children's safety, 2,000 years before you feared for your neighbor or you feared your neighbor, 2,000 years before you worried about your next paycheck, 2,000 years before you worried about the promotion and the provision and all that you need, 2,000 years before any fear crept into your brain or your heart, here's what Jesus said to his people. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as this world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How in the world could Jesus say that 2,000 years before we were even around? Because he knew he was going to change your heart. Because he knew by his election, for his joy, for his glory, he would make you his own. He not only said this, see, he did this. He gave us a new heart, a clean heart, a freed heart, a heart that is filled by his spirit. Therefore, church, my sister, my brother, we need not fear. Why? Because perfect love, this kind of perfect love drives out fear. See, when we are fearful, we build defenses build emotional walls and block certain people out and only let some in. But we are a people to whom the Lord has spoken, fear not. Not just as words, but as a promise fulfilled. Whenever we are fearful, then we are disbelieving the love of Jesus. So whenever we are fearful, we don't need self-esteem. We don't need religion. We don't need better habits. We don't need spiritual sentiment. We don't need external displays of righteousness. We don't need a fresh and a re-up and a DTR with our idols. We need to kill our idols. We need to put to rest the things that we trust and love more than Jesus. We should allow him to strip those things away because whenever we are fearful, what we need is Christ, the one who was cut off for us. So we need to never fear being cut off from the God who now sings praise over us because of the new heart he has put in us. So let's worship him and thank him. Heavenly Father, this is incredible news for us. Help us to believe it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.